Welcome to Podshot, everyone. I'm Seb, and I'm joined this week by Loken. Loken, how are you? Not too bad, thank you. Great to hear. And we're joined by a special guest, but one that we have heard before. It's the Bukayo Saka in terms of workload on analyzing set pieces. It's Jake Fox. Jake, how are you? Yeah, very well, thanks. Thanks for having me back on to talk more crap about corners. It's always great to have sickos on who love talking about things that mortals just don't really talk about that much. Anyway, before we get into the discussion on the on the game itself, uh, the customary potshot question, I suppose I'm going to start with Jake here. Jake, what's your favorite film or films of all time? Oh, okay. Um... I'm not actually sure. So I, I, re I really like Whiplash. I think that's one of my kind of go-tos. But I think in terms of the film, I probably watched the most, which are probably therefore my favorite. I really like, have you seen um, the uh, the film About Time? It's like a rom-com time travel with uh, Donald Gleeson in it. And Rachel I don't McAdams. think I have actually, no. It's, I've watched that film, I think, double figures. And it's. I don't know wow. why I love it, but I. it's just oh just brilliant yeah so i'll go for that one and just out myself on that a rom-com enthusiast is always welcome in it uh loken your favorite film or films of all time i i don't think i have a favorite film of all time which is pretty bad like i feel like i should um i'm just looking through my letterbox right now and i'll go with like one of my favorites that i watched recently which would definitely be up there um called hell or high water mm which is really good. I really recommend it. Set in yeah. West Texas. I get the idea of not having a favorite film because it's just incredibly hard to nail it down to one. So when anyone asks me this, I usually go to like my four highest rated or the four th things I have in my letterbox, which are Parasite by Bong Joon-ho, uh, La N, obviously, um, Leon by uh, Luc Besson, and Little Miss Sunshine, which is a really, really underrated piece of cinema. Mm. But alas, much to my chagrin, we are not a cinema podcast. We are a football podcast. And a football game happened recently, and it was quite good. So let's get into the game summary. Arsenal traveled to East London to face West Ham, a team they had lost to twice this season already, once in the league and once in the cup. It had all the makings of a banana peel game with Arsenal missing more players to short-term injuries as well as the recent high of beating Liverpool at the Emirates. The game started fairly slowly with both sides feeling each other out. Then, as has often been the case this season, Arsenal opened the scoring with a set-piece goal as an in-swinging delivery from Rice was met with the head of William Saliba in the 32nd minute. The floodgates proceeded to open. Saka converted a penalty in the 41st minute after being taken down by West Ham keeper Alphonse Areola, before Gabriel converted yet another Declan Rice delivery, this time from a free kick from the left-hand side. Right before halftime, Trossard angled one into the top right after being fed by the Arsenal captain Martin Oedegaard. The Gunners went into the break 4-0 up, and Arsenal didn't let go there. Bukayo Saka received on the half turn to beat Alphonse Areola at the near post before Declan Rice rifled one in from 25 yards out to round off the afternoon and put Arsenal 6-0 up inside 65 minutes against his former side. 
The last third of the game was unremarkable, but Arsenal fans did get to see exciting 16-year-old Ethan Wanneri feature for the first time since he made his debut last year. Arsenal went up to third, two points behind Liverpool and level on points with Manchester City, having played an extra game to the latter. Worthy of note, a 6-0 thrashing means Arsenal are now only one goal behind Liverpool in that department and level with City on goal difference. It's also the largest winning margin Arsenal have ever recorded away from home. The title race is well and truly on. Now, I think there's a lot to discuss in a 6-0 thrashing, but I think since we have Jake on the pod, I think the thing to start with here and the topic at hand is that we opened the deadlock and scored our first three goals with consecutive set pieces, if you count penalties as set pieces. And I think since we lost, uh, since you did the podcast with Alex on set pieces, I think there's been a development in that Declan Rice is now nailed on as our main in-swing corner taker from the left-hand side. So my question basically is, why is he the first? Uh, why is he the first choice uh, set piece taker on that side? Why does it work so well? And have we seen anything different in set pieces since we last spoke? Yeah, so it's really helpful that after we do a nice wrap-up hour and 30 podcast, they start doing new stuff immediately. So that's really good. But it It's is... just a confirmation that Nico Jovell listens to the podcast. Exactly. He's a fan and he's he's always updating, which is, which is good. But yeah, I think I had a look at the, the stats today because um, I was looking at kind of why we would move along from Martin and Trossard because in my head I don't think they were that bad I think Trossard's had some some stinker games this year I think we were fairly bad in the West Ham home game actually we were pretty terrible we couldn't be the first man but then I found out that Rice has already equaled uh, Martinelli and Trossard's total assists from corners already and he's been taking them for like three weeks uh, since uh, the start of last season so it's clearly something we want to improve. And I think the key is that we've tried to just move away, especially on that side, from just being a front post heavy team. So there's an article on the analyst, which looks at like our percentage of um, distribution for our corners and where they end up for the last season and a half. And we have like so much emphasis on the front post and especially from Martinelli and Trossard's side pretty much every corner will go there with the exception of like maybe there's the Kai header against Sevilla where he scuffs into the ground and then even the Rice one against Man United is, a, is from Saka's side so Martinelli and Trossard are always hitting that front post and it kind of means that from that side teams can set up really quite easily against us and it becomes a lot harder for us to earn anything interesting and so Rice all of a sudden comes out of nowhere with these deep like curling in-swinging crosses that go really really high and um dip really really nicely into this back post area and all of a sudden these teams that kind of had set up quite quite comfortably i guess in terms of where to defend who to defend now have to deal with the fact that we can rice can go short i think we saw there was a one corner we end up going short and Erdegaard did like a half space cross we can go um front post i think rice did one of two of his in, in front post area or we can do these these deep crosses which we never really had before and it's kind of this new level of unpredictability which must make defending us an absolute pain and it's it's very much kind of the same as what Everton do. Um, I think 
you might have been watching the Everton Spurs game the other week where it was on Dwight McNeil's side and he'll do these like lovely looping crosses over the top of the keeper. And then we, so for example, we use Ben White as per usual to sit on the goalkeeper. He's for the goal, for the first goal, he stands on Ariola's blind side, stops him coming back out. And then all of a sudden we have um, Saliba, Kai, and then Gabriel a bit, further, uh, a bit further on, who would now have this basically free header against these zonal markers who aren't expecting us to be kicking it there and it's just this kind of yeah constant fear that we put into these teams now with rice taking it that we can kind of do anything from that situation and it's i really like it to be honest i think it's a nice little caveat that i don't think anyone would have seen coming oh i definitely didn't and i've watched all of them so this might be a stupid question but Is it then just a skill issue of Trossard and Martinelli not being able to like reliably repeat those deep crosses? Or um, yeah, I think it it could be to be fair because I mean Trossard never really took corners for Brighton before he came to us, so I'm not entirely sure what we saw apart from the fact that he was just too small to be valuable in the box for him to be taking them. Um, Martinelli, I think, was just kind of the the go-to with Saka on the opposite side so that we kind of have our winger in that wide area afterwards. But I think now we actually have someone who can be able to to generate that power and lift, which I think Martinelli, yeah, like I said, it kind of seems like is a just a leftover part of the routine. Um, yeah, I, I would, I'd agree that it probably is a skill issue, I guess. Um, in fact, Rice has that ball striking to be able to kick it hard, kick it long, which we didn't really have before. I suppose I have one more question, considering you brought up the element of unpredictability or the element of surprise somewhat with uh, Kai, Gabriel and Saliba being situated at the back post. Is that something that has the risk of wearing off, considering we are now basically, I'm telegraphing is probably not the right word, but we are situating our best headers of the ball in that zone, which sort of indicates the the strategy we're going with so is th is that something that could be counterable or um i think it definitely could be but it's it's an interesting thing because for a lot of kind of people in the corner space which says is a horrible thing for me to say um because you know, i just watched a few um a lot of them have really focused on that kind of like first contact and so if they the logic becomes that, oh, we, we are focusing on the back post from Rice's corners and we're going to push all our people back there. All of a sudden, you lose those kind of zonal, that zonal preference in the front post. And so then, and you're more likely to probably to get back um, blindside blockers on the far post as well. And so you, you have to kind of create a very specific corner defense just for Arsenal, which I think a lot of teams don't love doing. Like um, We don't really change our, our defense in terms of team to team. We still have the same zonals. We still have the same man-to-man -man markers most games. We, we change a couple of the players, but we don't really change the spaces that we're covering. And so if teams then have to start spending a few of the days a week or one day a week looking at, okay, Arsenal are going to start hitting this far post because that's what Bryce would do. Um, in in anticipation of us getting like three or four corners, then and all of a sudden we then change up in the day and go short, but go short or we go near post or something like that because of the spaces that have been changed. I think we're just going to end up getting benefits elsewhere. So if we lose the the benefit of unpredictability in the corner deliveries, we might end up 
having a bit more space in open play because teams wouldn't be able to press us as coherently or something like that. So it's it's information overload. I think it's, I think there's an argument of why we change the penalty status quite a lot. It's not only do we have like no definite amazing penalty status, but I think Kai is probably the best in terms of numbers. But it's that kind of information overload in terms of how much you have to prep for our games now. It's not just like, oh, if we get a penalty, it's this guy taking. You can just watch a few clips for the game. It's now like, oh, so Arsenal have had like six different penalty takers out of the last seven. So go now watch seven different penalty takers and get them all written down in your water bottle. Something like that. So yeah, I think that's my my overall thing is that unpredictability will be lost, but gains are going to be made elsewhere if it is. Just something to add, because in your um, in the podcast with you and Alex, where you're talking about the set pieces, you used like the I can say term, but like brute force. That's just like brute forcing it. And I guess in, there's there is an element to which we've got like what four or five people hanging about the back post, most of whom are over six foot. There's only so much you can counter that with, and it's like I mean, as someone who hasn't been paying attention to set pieces for most of their lives. Um, it's kind of crazy to see. I, I was trying to in the rewatch um, to pay attention to them, and they're all focused around like the 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 six yard box latitudinal line, and it's like there's no there's no like oh yeah little routines to get I don't know like someone a free header. I mean it makes sense because it'd be further away from goal, but it's crazy how we can really just focus that one corridor closest to goal. Sometimes near post, sometimes back post, and like score as much as we do yeah you think like because there's a lot of talk about like Aston Villa doing their, their weird setups and stuff like that for their, uh, their free kicks and corners where they kind of they chuck everyone back on the line and they come back out and it you know scares goalkeepers or whatever and Brentford and Everton kind of have to do quite a lot of like really you know hard work to earn their, their headers and then we just now have an ability to give it to Declan Rice and lump it in towards the three six foot guys and maybe Kivior on a in a different day and just go like go on lads just have at it and it's now what we've scored like four uh, in the last couple of games um scored two against Palace uh corner here today so, yeah so like and it it must be annoying for other set piece now as an analyst to just look at us do it just launching it in with just like not much care apart from just like fainting a couple of times and it's just working out it's really funny to be honest uh yeah i just had one more question because i was looking out for free kicks as well um obviously the the free kick which led to a goal rice's delivery was insane um it was just a case of of rice having one of the best ball striking displays i've ever seen but the other one that I counted was like a second phase delivery thing where we were, we had a little dynamic with Erdegaard, Saka and Rice. And I think it was either Erdegaard or Rice. I think Erdegaard darted forward to take Bowen with him, which led um, to Rice being free, right? And then Saka reverse pass to Rice and it, it didn't lead to anything. Um, but I just, in a macro sense, I was just wondering how we do um, again, as someone who hasn't been paying too much attention to it, jockey between sort of those second phase deliveries and then direct deliveries and how good we are at doing the second phase stuff as well. So that's an interesting one because we don't typically like, we haven't really been doing anything interesting on second phase stuff in terms of free kicks, not as far as I can remember. A lot of it is until Rice started taking stuff. It was basically just like Erdegaard whips it in 
and it would usually go towards the near post area, kind of where it went for Rice's um, attempt. It'll be um, normally a bit further out. So I, I quite like these second phase stuff. I think it's something that we've, we've not really been using quite as much, especially given like the quality of crosses we have. I think we've we've done it occasionally from corners. I think um, there was this Zinchenko one in the West Ham home game that we did. Um, we if we do free kicks, we're usually doing to be quite honest, stupid stuff. So we'll usually like try like laying it off for three people to have a shot and stuff like that. And we'll do like three different runners all close, and then we've got all our defenders out of position. It's just horrible. So I'm, I'm quite glad that these seem to be like a bit more controllable i think um can you remember the score or like what minute that was in because it might be interesting as to whether it's something that we've we've chosen to do because we were winning and because west ham have that like horrendous transition threat it was it was the ninth minute so it was oh okay an experimental thing probably yeah oh uh, yeah we do so our first ones of the game are usually the the most creative so if you're looking for okay. something that we're doing weird in terms of strategy, we'll, we, it would usually be the first one. I think Liverpool's maybe the only one where we just got it in there on the first attempt. Every other one in the first of the game will usually try and something stupid. But that, that that might change now that we've got Rice as a taker. I hate to move the conversation along from set piece. I think we could be here all day, but unless there's other things in football and uh, on that we got a question from one of our listeners from uh, Michael Clark at Michael A.R. Clark just a general thing if any of you want to send us questions of things we want to discuss uh, we should discuss on the po uh, on the podcast just send them into or tag us uh, tag our our podcast handle in the tweet and we will definitely keep it in Uh, Michael asks, to me it seemed we deployed the same double 10 system in two very different games in Liverpool and West Ham, just with different players. How is it so effective slash what am I missing about how it was different? I suppose I'm going to give this to Lorcan first. Um, do you think there was sort of structural overlaps between the Liverpool and West Ham game? And if so, where where would they lie? I, I think the main overlaps are to be found in the general principle um baiting jumps or, or the press generally but more so jumps individual jumps um to to be able to attack space in the final third which is how we attack best um and then structurally you can find similarities obviously like there were quite a lot of differences um from a structural standpoint we had like a conventional double pivot against liverpool um Whereas in this game, it was Odegaard with a free roll, sometimes in that double pivot, sometimes white inverting, which we didn't see um, from a structural perspective against Liverpool. And I think generally our our, um, our build-up was very much right-hand side focused, given that Kai was the left central, the nominal left central midfielder, um, which was the opposite um, for Liverpool. But I think it's the general, like generally the same principle. We saw... Um, that double 10 that um, the question refers to, triple 10 even, sometimes with Trossard coming deep. Um, but I think there was much more, I suppose both Liverpool and West Ham didn't want to commit. Uh, you saw Aged stepping up sometimes in the second half, but didn't want to commit someone from the last line, understandably so. So in both matches, it was a case of Arsenal having seven, sometimes even eight people in that build-up sequence, which is why it's so effective 
and, and you know we've got smart players there, namely Odegaard, who can bait um, movements. It's kind of the degree to which you can generate chances from that, which is, I guess, the best standard of saying whether it's good or bad. And I think against Liverpool, we actually didn't have too many clear-cut chances after that. We were quite conservative in our general play. Whereas here, we had loads. Um, I was really impressed with um, the way Trossard, Odegaard, Havertz kind of released our wingers quite early. A lot of in-swinging crosses after those build-up sequences. Um, but yeah, there was a lot, just a lot of, there was a huge variety of shapes, lots of rotations. Um, sometimes Raya coming to the fore as well as like an auxiliary center back. Um, I noted white inverting, but sometimes he was just a conventional right back as well. Um, so a bit different from, I guess, from the structural particulars of the game, but the same general principle, um, in terms of exploiting, you know, baiting individual jumps in the press to attack space in the final third. Yeah, on the white thing, I think that was one of the things that stood up most in the game and that we haven't really seen white invert as such at any point, really, in his Arsenal tenure. And to that, my sort of polemic question would be, why did we wait so long for to see white inversions, especially in Zinchenko's absence, when we have tried other people there that might not be the stylistic fits that white would be in that role? I, I would say he's he's a better fit than Tomiyasu, both Tomiyasu and Kivior for me for 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 that um, sort of receiving inside the pivot. Even if it was, I mean, we'll see whether it was a situational thing or not. I suppose it does put Gabriel as the central most centre back, of, as people have 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 noted, which is not his strong suit um, either in possession or in the unlikely event that we do turn over the ball. He's not best at defending at those angles. Um, so that would be my shorthand answer. I I think generally as well, Arteta's less willing to try loads of different things and, and make loads of different tweaks and sees um to see what sticks more and he's more inclined to test out particular things and just let them run their course. If they work, they work. If they don't, they don't. Um But yeah, we, we saw some of the advantages that it got. It got it allowed us to to access Trossard, who would come outside on the right hand side as the free man, it got, or, or Odegaard sometimes as well. It got Saliba into those situations where he could carry, which he doesn't really mm -hmm. do. Um, I think that was the one central of the big things, right? really, to yeah. see sort of untapped potential there. It almost looked like Marseille Saliba, who was sort of playing that sort of right back, right yeah. centre back role, where he his his carrying was really leveraged. I, I think I have a sneaking suspicion we won't maybe see it too much in the run-in. Um, but I think from a general like squad building standpoint, it's really exciting. It's it's something I kind of have wanted White to do for a while, kind of thinking he probably won't. Um, and maybe he doesn't, who knows? But I think just the scope to even invert him from centre-back going forward, which would have Saliba as the central most centre-back and therefore not having that Gabriel issue, um, yeah, I think there's loads of different things you can do with it if it is something we persist with. So it's, it's I found it quite exciting. <laughs> Jake, do you have anything to add? So just from like a, uh, I don't know, a basic kind of in play analyst view, I, I really just enjoy, love the fluidity. It's like the first half especially, because you know, the second half kind of just died off a little bit, as it probably definitely should. But that first half was just incredible to watch especially on that right hand side um 
it always felt like it was something we would kind of go into, especially as kind of we have this this huge nude figure in rice in the middle of it all, and be like, okay, guys, try and have the fluidity of last year with this guy completely new. And it really felt like to me that was the what this was the clearest sign to me that he's really kind of getting it in terms of how willing all the players were to move around him on that right hand side. And then um, the relationship between Kai and Trossard on the left as well to allow it all kind of build up on the right and they kind of do their defensive dog work on the left and really just let it flow. It it really felt cohesive, which it it hasn't done um, in months before. So sometimes I think... You know the the main thing with when Kai was coming in is that he's a relationship player who didn't really feel like he had any relationships with any of the players, and um, this is like I've I've really liked Ben White tucking in. I think that's something I've been I've been banging the drum of Ben White coming central for a long time, and it's also better for his his poorly knees and his poorly Achilles. Um, so I'm happy to see that, and it also it's better use of Kivior as well to keep him away from those yeah. those areas. I think that's good for him because he gets a lot of pressure and a lot of stick for coming in and not being the best at inverting, which is fine. And keep him outside and let him do those occasional crosses and lung busting runs into the far post if he wants to do. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think there's generally been a theme since sort of the end of last year where we have seen an increased amount of sort of freedom to move within sort of the predefined structures, uh, the predefined roles within the structure but a lot more positional movements within that structure. And I think that's pretty much been a theme for, for the last few months. And especially in this game, in the first half, on that right-hand side, there's a lot of really nice rotations to get people who we want to get closer to goal, closer to goal. Uh, Lorton, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say on that point, it's I think that also gives us kind of an idea of why Arteta didn't do it. It's It's been the recipe for are you know are us getting better um like recently but i guess seen like from a big picture lens it's still a lot of rotations which will lead to um unfavorable like situations if you lose the ball it's a bit more risky and i think that's probably something arteta did bear in mind it's also a lot more work for odegaard he conducts the build-up um we know he leads the press as well like it's a lot more ground that he has to cover, and he's been, you know, man of the match. I think he's probably man of the match for this one as well. Um, but yeah, I, I just think the same. The answer as to why we've got better, which is as you've just noted, like the the sort of fluidity and the positional freedom that the players do have, is also. I think Arteta. It would be foolish to say Arteta wasn't aware of that as a possibility. It's kind of you know we saw it quite a lot last season as well. It's just, it does bring risks with it as well, um, or at least drawbacks. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, someone who we haven't really mentioned so far in, in that discussion is Trossard, who played the false nine, which sort of came as a surprise considering Kavitz did have a really good game last week as the sort of nominal nine. Um, but it, it goes to show that there is an increased amount of adaptability to the problems each team gives you and sort of finding solutions to that. And it brought up an interesting point for me, uh, which, which I also saw in the timeline a bit, which is, is there an argument to be made that Trossard fulfills the sort of the required, the 
principal requirements of a quote-unquote false nine better than Jesus? I think there's a point to be made here that Trossard is probably the better finisher of the two. And I do think there's some systematic advantages you can get out of someone who is a lot more formulaic in how they how they drop and how they play those things. I think there were about seven or eight sequences where we drew West Ham out of their shape through sort of baiting those jumps from deep build-up. And the first ball was into, like, a straight-line ball into Trossard, who was able to immediately lay it off to uh, either side to then move move the attack from there. So I suppose the question is, is there a scope for more Trossard 9 or more so that Trossard would fulfill that role even if Jesus is fit, one, and how can that lead to other sort of new ways to configure the attack and sort of possibilities that that entails? Personally, I was saying this to someone yesterday, actually, that I do think I'd like to see an extended run of Trossard in if if we're going to keep kind of running this sort of system because I think Kai's really gelling with it, which I really am a big fan of. And I will also want to see kind of longer term, I'd, I'd like to see Jesus a bit wider. I think that he played right wing against City in that home game. I thought it's one of his best performances um, since his kind of like big injuries. And he looks really comfortable in his wide areas. He's got the dribbling and he gives us a different threat to Saka in that he's willing to go full on outside and just like make it a real pain for wide defenders. Um, he's a he's a um, pressing machine. And so you can like do different kind of schemes in terms of that way. You can have him tucking in and going inside and stuff like that. Um, I don't know how that would work because I've not really thought about it too much, but I think that's an interesting way. And you can also kind of take a lot of the, if you don't want him to press as much, you can take a lot of that kind of like physical strain off him, which is probably not helping his comeback um, in terms of all of these injuries. And then he goes on a Sunday and he goes, okay, you go up front as one of our two like really active presses alongside Odegaard and you lead the whole thing. And so I think Trossard's really intelligent, that sort of thing. I think we saw it in the Wolves game. He was incredible out of possession. Um, and then you also have that relationship on the left. He's willing to come work hard back, which is a lot of lot of time and effort and a lot of you know, physical strain, which gives, um, which, yeah, I, I don't think it's wise to give Jesus at this point. Um, I, yeah, just in general, I really like it. I think it's good. Um, I think there's a lot of good kind of relationships that he's building, and he's also willing to do the that um, those long passes. Which I don't really think I've seen from Jesus. Um, I might be wrong. There were two in the first half that were just absolutely insane. Oh my god! There was um, there was one I I, would ass- I assumed was Rice, and I was like, oh, that's a fantastic work to Martinelli. And then I watched it again, and I went, oh, that was that was Trossard from there. Sure, fine. And then he did that, and he did the, obviously the ball for the sack of penalty as well. And that is an added threat from that side, which I don't think that we've had really. And it's in the absence of someone like uh, Vieira kind of delivering it from that area if he, if he was in or something like that. To have that additional threat of um, punishing teams if they want to step higher to us, as, as well as sit back against us because Trossard's really good in those tight spaces. I think he's doing a lot of good work that we haven't really had a chance to see us do for a while um, with all the injuries and all the problems. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I think this came up as a topic of conversation um, earlier on in the season. I think it was when we both of us were on the pod, Seb. Yeah, I think after... we actually had this exact conversation before. <laughs> yeah, and I, I same conclusion, like... 
I think as in terms of like a pure footballing sense, I think he is more of a false nine than Jesus. Um, Jesus is much more of a kind of small spaces, dribbly combination play. Um, and in that sense was given like loads of responsibility last season, particularly and was one of the main reasons we got, you know, so much better, but Trossard's much more economical in his play kind of, which does facilitate those easy rotations, kind of one touch stuff. Um, Jesus can be guilty of kind of holding onto the ball a bit too long, I think, um, which is just part and parcel of who he is. I, I, you know, I don't think you change it for anything, but um, Trossard is, it kind of does disrupt the rhythm of play, I suppose, at times, whereas Trossard will release more readily than than Jesus. Um, yeah, they, they still give you different things, though. Um, obviously, Jesus is that target man, which people just do forget about. Mm-hmm. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Like, he's just, he's a nine and a false nine in one. Um, and for as good as Trossard is um, out possession, I, I suspect that Arteta would probably prefer to have Jesus from that perspective. I know, you know, Guardiola called him like the best pressing forward ever. Um, just more um, sort of steely. Um, but yeah, I, I think there are definitely merits for Trossard false nine that you don't get with Jesus. Um, and in this sort of the discourse of do we need a nine, what goes missing a little bit is that we have loads of kind of really good, not necessarily excellent, um, but three really good options, which all offer different things. Four if you count Eddie as an option. Shit. <sighs> <laughs> Oh. oh no. I love Eddie as well. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Jake, say what do you want to say, please? Yeah, um, yeah I was just on that point about uh, you saying like Tross has a bit more kind of economical in the way he uses the ball and Jesus and stuff like that. Do you think that this is part of the reason that when we went 2 0 up early last season at West Ham? I distinctly remember Jesus kind of just wandering everywhere and being like the the falsest of false nines that I've ever seen. And he was like next to Partey and Odegaard at like centre-back. And it was very weird. Do you think that kind of play from that position made the difference in how we played at the weekend compared to a year ago? Or is there just like too many factors? Into, I think we had holding, playing, and we also had Partey, stuff like that. Do you think that kind of contributed? And I think that's something that's on Arteta's mind, or is it more just like that was just a very specific game and a very specific run? In terms of like particularly um, a contrast between two games, I, I couldn't tell you just because that whole run in last season, I've wiped from my hard drive like completely. It's like... To add some context trauma. here, I think it was far more about Thomas Partey deciding to play it over, <laughs> yeah. to try and play it over a onrushing Declan Rice more than anything. But but I remember, I remember, I think it was in, I want to say it was in the Wolves away fixture last season. I might have just made that up completely. Um, maybe it was Leeds, I don't know. But I, I, I remember tweeting, like, it's all good and well having your false nine come deep to overload the centre, but they can't do it just for the sake of doing it. And I think you kind of touched on it Jesus comes deep to get the ball, which is fine. But Trossard comes deep at more, like it feels like at more appropriate intervals. Um, so in that sense, I think there is a difference. I think I think the way you can phrase this is that 
Trossard's drop feel more like a team-specific thing where he drops for the team to create new movements, whereas Jesus oftentimes drops for himself to get a feel of the game and to sort of get himself involved on an individual basis more than anything. For sure. I think we're going to put in a little break now, and we'll be back after this. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed that sweet, jazzy jingle. To start the second half of this podcast, uh, I promised Lorcan that he would have a segment on this podcast where he is able to just read off statistics for a bit. Uh, so I'm just going to give the floor to Lorcan and have him say why we are so yeah. good. And stats never lie. So if they, for some reason, make us look really good, then we must be. Um. Facts don't <laughs> care about your feelings. Um, so it was the first time since 2009 that we scored six goals away from home which was also against a David Moyes side. Um, quite funny. Saka scored his 50th and 51st goal for Arsenal, making him the youngest Arsenal player ever to reach that milestone. Um, 209 appearances, 22 years old. Um, also recording an assist during the game, as you guys all know. Um, so 101 goal involvements for Arsenal in his career, which is not bad given that he started out a left back. Um, Arsenal had 25 shots against West Ham in this game. Somehow that wasn't as much as the other game, which means that in total, Arsenal recorded 55 shots against West Ham in the Premier League this season. Um, Arsenal had 46 touches in the West Ham box on Sunday, which means they've had 959 touches in the opposition box in total, which leads the league um, beyond Spurs, Liverpool and City. Saka has had 181 of those touches. And then I've got two more. Um, Arsenal had six big chances created, scoring four of those, which is pretty clinical. That's the third time in the last four matches that that's happened and only the fourth time total this season. So we are hitting our strides considerably. Um, and lastly, Arsenal have conceded two shots on target in the last two games. And Arsenal had more goals on Sunday than they've had total shots conceded in the last three minute, uh, three games. Total shots on target conceded. Yeah. So yeah, not 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 bad, not bad. I feel like we could just wrap the podcast <laughs> up here and just leave that as the analysis. <laughs> the funny thing about that uh, touches in the opposition box stat is we not only lead. Uh, Liverpool City and Tottenham we fucking significantly lead them we're what 80 something touches ahead of the next that's best half team? a Bukayo Saka total touches in there <laughs> <laughs> but since you brought up the the West Ham counter game you just made a comment off mic about how there was a significant amount of bravery and central passing this game that was lacking in the other game uh, I just wanted to give you the floor and sort of just expand on that idea a bit yeah I was I was meant to touch on it before but I think it all I think it probably all stems from a general strategy um, going into the game and I think we were much too we too quickly went into the wide areas in the reverse fixture in December against West Ham um, and I think a lot of our success this game was in the wide areas, but it was by arriving in the wide areas because we were, we had that willingness to sort of probe the middle, 
have an aggregate of players in the middle, um, including White, and kind of test West Ham's resolve. Um, they kind of wanted to do that 4-2-3-1 mid-block thing, but it barely looked like that throughout the game because there were so many different players, like Alvarez, Suchek, between two players. Um, so yeah, in short, I just, I think we was, we have been recently and were in this game so much better at just being more courageous and build up. Um, it will lead to, you know, risky situations. Um, but that's kind of where the advantages came from in this West Ham game. I'd argue it's not just about courage, uh, just about courage or sort of individual responsibility. I think it's as much down to structure. And I think what we were sort of at fault with for a large part of that November, December run was just a general lack of available options between the lines when we were sort of pinning teams in. And that sort of is given considering sort of Odegaard has started to move out of the block somewhat or just drop deeper into the sort of pivot role. Harvards is someone who just moves out of the block or out of those sort of congested areas and central areas as much. And having them sort of know when to occupy those spots as well as having Trossard, who I think adds to that significantly in how he moves and how he drops, just has given us a new dimension, especially against teams that sort of drop in their sort of defensive third. I think it's it's something we still have to work on a bit. I think against Nottingham Forest, we saw a lot of the sort of bad moments return and how sort of completely isolating, sort of vacating central areas and just sort of moving around the horseshoe. But it's promising to see that I think as much in personnel, structure and intention, we're just moving back to sort of not being as, not being risk averse in the most extreme sense still having the control that sort of makes this team what it is but sort of dial back in on creating penetration as it were i think a really good sign for us as well is that this is the first time we've ever really that i can remember that we've done a performance like this without zinchenko in so we've done this with that's a very good point, yeah. in, and in the home game to west ham we had Kivio, uh, we had zinchenko and jesus in who I would be like, if I had to name two players who I'd really want in a situation where we were kind of like trying to break down a stodgy block, I'd want the two City boys in coming and waltzing through and doing dangerous passes. And this time we had Kai and Kivior in, more kind of like traditional six-footers plus, who you'd think would be a bit more like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll, la we'll launch this in. And we were a bit more courageous. We're doing really interesting rotations and stuff like that. And so I think it's a, yeah, a generally really good sign for us that we can perform like this without being reliant on a Zinchenko kind of between the lines masterclass. While we're on this, and since you've mentioned him, I, want, I was going to bring this up later, but uh, was this one of Kai's best games playing as an eight? I say this because we've had a few games where we were sort of territorially and ball dominant, but there was an extreme lack of Kai really getting involved in play. I think he had about 60-odd touches this game, completed 40, 44 out of 46 or something on his passing, and sort of did a really good job of sort of keeping his circulative responsibilities going and sort of keeping play ticking over, as well as moving into spaces to combine with other players. And 
moving into spaces where we can get Martinelli inside as well. I, th I think from what we want to expect from that role, as it is now, especially since we moved Odegaard deeper and sort of compensated for that, I think in totality, I think this was a really good game for, game for Kai. I was wondering if, if there's any feedback there. I, I think so. Um, it's it's weird. I think the better his performances are, the less much of like the less eight performances they are. Like he's not, he doesn't look like an eight. And I think that obviously coincides with Erdogan dropping deeper, but he's almost at this like a 10 tip of the diamond position most of the time where he can be that plus one centrally um, to find between the lines some of the time. I know Declan Rice found him a couple of times between the lines um, or come as a plus one wide. I think one of the things I really liked in this game was um, us clogging the middle, finding inevitably finding an extra man out wide because we'd overload um, build up, which would cause the West Ham block to collectively retreat. But then there would be space between the West Ham last line, which hadn't pushed up because they don't want anyone to, to come up. And they're kind of pressing unit. And those passes, when the ball's wide in, um, were able to find Havertz. And I think he's quite good at that. Um, it's one of the things that's kind of left over from the Leverkusen days, where he'd receive the ball in the right half space and drive forward and maybe initiate some combination play, which he doesn't necessarily do anymore. Um, but he's become much more confident in the carry, like a lot more compared mm, to at the beginning yeah. of the season. And it's, we know what he's good at um, and which are sort of not prototypical number, uh, you know, number eight stuff. Um, and we've had to get better at trying to exploit those things. But at the same time, you have to rely on him getting better at kind of the smaller things so that he can perform an, like as a number eight to an okay standard and then tick over in those things that he's really good at. Um, and for me, those are those little things like releasing runners quickly and not disrupting the rhythm, which he, I, th I feel like he has been guilty of a lot this season. Really good at that in this game. Um, and driving with the ball, maybe even meet, beating a man in transition, again, did that this game. So I, yeah, I can't complain. I think it, it was a good performance. It's I, I was watching with my flatmates and they were like, why are you talking about, you know, little things that Kai Havertz are doing, is doing, which is fair enough, you know, um, it didn't pop out. He wasn't probably one of the six or seven best performers, but you're not asking him to be. Um, and I think he did everything he was asked to do. I think with the discussion of him being an eight, I think, especially when we had those discussions earlier on in the season, I think there was a bit of a disconnect in in linguistic terms in that what do we define as an eight and sort of the responsibilities of an eight? Because he does have some interior traits, especially, hmm, let me phrase that differently. He has a lot of good traits in midfield zones higher up the pitch where he's able to sort of affect play in the final third, get combinations going, sort of keep play taking over, as well as what you've mentioned, the carrying and, and things like that. What he is lacking and what he's sort of never really been is a, one, a volume passer and a sort of proficient passer from sort of second phase play and I think the big disconnect in that especially at the beginning of the season was that we didn't see him in we saw that we saw that in isolation and didn't see that that wasn't a fixable issue in how we are currently deploying Odegaard and sort of 
getting him to take on some of the responsibilities Shaka had beforehand and getting Kai into roles that he's he's good at and thrives in. And I think since since we've sort of reconciled that there is a lot more function in that midfield. And as a general point, I think having someone who's able to fulfill like three or four different roles in the team to a pretty good standard is elite out of possession. That's an incredibly positive person to have in the squad. Honestly, I couldn't agree more, um, especially that just availability and can perform multiple roles at Premier League standard, which will, you know, get overlooked a little bit. Um, but I think, I guess what I'm trying to say, I, I do agree with your point in regards to sort of semantics, but even if you look at kind of the, the passing network for this game, everything was right-hand side focused. Like Martinelli did not really get the ball um, and it does sort of require Erdegaard to come deep and almost be that second pivot for most of the game, which we've talked about sort of the workload that that entails. Um, so all of this is fine. Like, I think we should continue doing it. It gets the best out of Erdegaard as well. It's not just Erdegaard making a sacrifice to make Havoc looks good. It's us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 100%. It's, you know, it's, yeah, it's yeah. all working for everyone's benefit. We'll, we'll get on to Erdegaard as an individual as well. Um, I think one thing I would counter to that is that I think the extreme right-hand side bias this game was as much down to the way we were inverting and especially just not having a proficient sort of second-phase passer on the left-hand side in Zinchenko's absence that we just had all our best passes on the right-hand side clumped together. So if if that's a consequence of Harvard's playing on that side, I'm I'm not really sure it is, but... Yeah. Jake, do you have anything to add on that? Um, yeah, I think I'd agree kind of generally with both of you. I think it, it, I did really enjoy Kai. And I think in terms of that like left-hand side thing, is that I, I felt this is one of Martinelli's better games for me because of the, the space that was being afforded to him by Kai just vacating that whole side. And it, the, he doesn't show up in the pass map, obviously, because we're only getting into in like very specific scenarios. But I can usually tell if Kai's having a good game if Martinelli's not having a terrible game because he's being afforded the opportunity to do the stuff he's good at which is just like go at a man in a bit of space and not have to like get through about three players or Kai overlapping his underlap and stuff like that and just getting in the way and stuff like that and I think as well I was just looking at the the number of touches that Kai's had like per game and these last Two of the last three games, Kai's had the most touches he's had um, for us. I think for us to have won um, six nil with Kai out, this is this only the second game he's had more than fifty touches, and we've we still looked really cohesive and really good with Kai getting that much of the ball, which I don't think would have been the case early in the season. Like you said, he was like struggling in terms of like his passing weight, in terms of like him not carrying it properly, him not like really having gelled. And even just security upon reception. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there yeah. was just a whole lot wrong at the beginning. Yeah, of the that season. was a, that was a man with his, his head looking to the floor at all times and like shoulders slumped and everything. Whereas now he's getting, it's not like crazy amount of touches. He's still got like fifty six, and his highest is like sixty five against Forest. But he got fifty six, and we won six 0 and he still enabled a lot of like really good play, and he didn't take us notably down which I think is a real improvement for us, especially given like all the kind of like the chop and change we've had in terms of the players around him. So yeah, in general, I think it proved, I really did think it was a good game just by the the way the players around him were playing. 
which is what I kind of look for in a Havertz performance. Yeah, I, I think we recognized it as such at the beginning of his time, but I think it was always apparent that Havertz was a sort of reconciliation project and someone that was going to take a bit of time to get used to new instructions and new roles into the team after playing as a sort of out-and-out centre-forward for a few years, which I'm not really sure is where you get the best out of him, especially in the way Chelsea deployed him. But I think to move on from him a bit, I think the last point on sort of structural things and something that we've t touched on a lot recently is for a few weeks now, especially since the Dubai break, we've had a we've done a better job at getting our wingers inside and sort of finding ways of doing that. And since since Lorcan is probably the one who's banged on most about that concept, I'd, I'd just like to give you the floor and sort of expand on how we've been able to find Saka and Martinelli in more central spaces. I think exemplary of that is the second goal Saka scored where he was able to receive on the half turn between the central defender and the right back in, in more space than previously been with him. Yeah, I, I think... Um... Well, I mean, you bring up that goal. Um, I think there are a few more wrinkles to the variety of positions that sort of wide triangles can look like. So normally it's like sometimes they've looked a bit redundant with Erdegaard not really being a dynamic option. But I think particularly in this game with Rice inversing, it allowed Erdegaard to sort of be that right back, right wing or whatever you, you want to call it. And just... Even the fact that there can be a variety of different shapes where you don't really know whether it's going to be Saka, Erdegaard or White holding width or, or vice versa in the pocket is definitely unsettling for teams. I think generally speaking, the simple answer is Erdegaard dropping. Um, like Jake talked about, like it's, I guess the, the interior conversations like, oh, replace Havertz with, I don't know, Smithrow or Trossard, replace Erdegaard with Smith-Rowe to benefit the wingers. We ha we obviously haven't done that. Um, but I think as much as it, people have focused about on on getting like the right dynamic interiors to help the wingers, it's also just get the interiors out of the way of, of the wingers. And that's coincided obviously with Erdegaard coming deeper and us generating most of our advantages through deep build-up. Um, so I think it's almost as simple as that. Mm -hmm. Like we saw both Saka, but especially Martinelli actually receiving between the lines in this game where Martinelli just came over to centre forward and it was actually Trossard or Havertz for left wing um, as the left winger during some spells. So I think like deep build-up is the, is the main one. Um, obviously helped with Odegaard coming deeper. I'm really glad you brought that up because I was going to mention it as well in that I think a lot of the reason why the attack has looked better is that increased emphasis on sort of drawing teams out in deep build-up. And that was something that at the start of the season was a large part of the untapped potential we had in this team in that we didn't really do that. We sort of kept our territorial dominance high and sort of allowed teams to sit in as much as the narrative has been that teams just instinctively set in to sort of negate Arsenal. So there's a psychological aspect to teams coming out to press once you antagonize them enough and that's sort of the the mantra that brighton have found their their recent success in and something that we've incorporated and i'm really glad we did so 
I, I don't want to keep coming back to Kai Havertz, but I'm going to because in the, it's it's okay. We we love Kai Havertz. <laughs> in the second half, um, it was quite a lot, especially on that right hand side to get Saka kind of coming in. I saw like Kai. I think the first half Kai ended up on the right wing a few times, and Saka was coming in like central, and Martinelli was doing that. I wonder if like if the the value of Kai is now not only that he'll just do the dog's work in defending, and he'll open up that that channel on the left for Trossard to move around, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but he's also now like he's so comfortable in just kind of wandering, and Arteta is really comfortable in letting him wander as well. And so that that's a way to unlock Saka in these central areas as well as Martinelli, obviously on the same side, and with Erdegaard dropping deep and and Kai doing whatever Kai does. I wonder whether this is going to be a more common success. I, we used it a couple of times earlier in the season where Kai was like right eight and Saka tucks in. I was like, oh, I, I really like that. Please do more. And then we saw Kai go centre forward again. But um, yeah, in general, I, I'd like, I wonder if Kai is kind of a core way that we can use going forward as well as Erdogan dropping deep to get Saka into these, these valuable areas where he can kick it really hard in the goal. Yeah, I mean... One of the things that has always been mentioned about him by everyone that sort of worked with him is the the intelligence he has and sort of understanding the way the team wants to play and sort of malle- moving his game accordingly. So I definitely get that it's, point. It, it, to move on from... yeah, No, not, not to move on. Um, it's, it's sticking with... <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's a boring thing to say. Sticking with Kai Havertz. But like, he's Go just... On. He, Go on, he's, he's second to none, in, honestly, in the league when it comes to just being in the right place at the right time, which is a skill. Like such a... I mean, it doesn't look like it because um, he sort of awkwardly like finds himself, wanders into dangerous zones. But it's like... Or, or whether it's picking up like... For the Trossard goal, for example... He picks up, I think, the third ball and then the fifth ball. Like there's a little ping pong session, um, and they're not terribly hard duels that he wins, but he's there nonetheless. Um, and it's the same. Like w- whenever we've sort of uh, there's an in swinging cross and it's claimed by the opposition keeper, what doesn't get picked up is Kai Havertz sprinting back, um, where you know, and for as good as I think probably Sack and Martinelli almost have too much responsibility defensively. So I'm not singling them out here, but he's alone in doing that, you know, like he's, he knows where the sort of dangers are. Um, and he'll readily, even when he's at centre forward, he'll slot into the back line. If it's like, if he has to, um, he'll contend for headers. Like it's all those little things that are just immensely valuable, um, especially to this Arsenal side. I think where there's a huge emphasis on on duels. I think I think I noticed that specifically when I was watching back um, for the the half chance where Kibior like get just about gets right side of his man with Kudos going down the wing. Um, it, Kai is on the halfway line as, as the ball goes out, and he ends up like deeper than Declan Rice next to the ball next to Kibior, and he's just like enters this like full on gallop. And I just, I love watching him do that. But it, I, I appreciate we we've been we won six 0 and we spent a lot of time talking about the man who didn't score yeah. or get an assist, which is like <laughs> ultimate sicko territory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is what this podcast is all about. Getting on to other sicko points, um, there was a second part to Michael's question we asked earlier in the podcast. Uh, the second part was 
What do you make of the front line of our press being Trossard and Odegaard out of possession? And in possession during build-up, Odegaard was often the deepest midfielder next to Rice. Curious why Havertz was deeper than Odegaard out of possession. I think we've touched on <clears throat> a lot of the reasons why that is, especially in possession with Odegaard taking on those second-phase responsibilities. But I think there's a point to be made that the physical effort that takes for Odegaard to fulfill both of those roles is significant. And I think there's it's valid to sort of ask if his involvement in the press and in organizing it outweighs the, the physical responsibilities he has in filling those two roles, especially with Kaya as someone who is good out of possession, but probably more so in contesting duels deeper, but I'm keen to get different perspectives here. Well, I, I think I've, like, for all the conversations about should Kai be playing eight that have kind of dominated uh, the 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 space, the discourse this season, I think a lot of what has been unmentioned has been Kai's utility defensively. And that's not only, like, loose balls and stuff, but the value of having two, and obviously the other one being Declan Rice, um, plays in the middle who can just block so many lanes. Like I was in the second half, which is obviously much more boring than the, the first half. I was just paying attention to how much we gambled out of possession. And we do it so often where other teams are sitting, would sit deep in their in their um, half in a 4-4-2. And we're actually doing it in like a 4-1-4-1 where we're even in our own like third, we're kind of baiting these risky passes into the half space, which just don't get done. Or that if they do, they get snuffed out because you have Odegaard and Havertz, who's immense, like, span. They're just massive guys. Um, and sort of now's for where to be and where to snuff things out. Um, but yeah, he is he's a double pivot player, uh, Kai Havertz, out of possession when he plays midfield. That's kind of a lot of his job description. Um, and then also, like, Odegaard leads the press and not only leads it in terms of like, okay, I'm going to, you know, the trigger's been set. I'm stepping up to the centre-back, but like, literally like, you go there, you go he there. He literally coaches it, yeah. And has such little, ironically, given his in-possession flaws, but has such little angle bias when it comes to to pressing. Um, there's a, there, no, there, there, honestly, there's an, I should probably go on because I, I know I'm, <laughs> I've given him a hard time. But where, where, where other players would sort of close someone down head on, he often does it in such an unconventional way where you're like, surely your man can just beat you. But then if they do, then they'll run into another Arsenal player. So yeah, no, he's instrumental to what we do when he does lead the press. Um, I think in terms of like this Kai deeper thing, I think that there's quite a lot of physical toll in the way that Kai can it just have to sit there. Cause it, no, he's that, he's that, that block yeah, you talked about there in terms of just like the size of him. So he cuts off a lot of like aerial possibility and stuff like that. So he's always got to be aware of the lanes he's covering and also like the physical like jostling he's likely going to get from in this game, probably like someone like Suchek or someone running forward to try and avoid the press of Erdegaard and Trossard. But then he's also the guy we'll look to if we manage to win possession or try and spring a transition is that those rangy like six foot six legs will just bolt forward. And he does... I think there's a lot of value in having him deeper and not up top because 
you have those then runs from these like these settled in possession opposition like state of the midfield where they're trying to build to and then from that you have the counter movement of kai just like gunning it towards your like now open back four with either trossard or erdegaard these really good linking players who have just like won the ball maybe martinelli or saka or something like that yeah i think that's a point well made and I, th- I think it's funny that Kaya seems to get taller every week. <laughs> He's six six now. That's that's a new thing. <laughs> uh, I, he will be seven foot by the end of the season. Yeah. I have one more polemic question to ask here. To both of you, why the hell did we waste over two months in trying to make Odegaard a second striker? <laughs> I think it goes hand in hand with um, a lack of sort of like rotations and fluidity in the, in in the first third because of being sort of generally risk averse. Um, I begat like I thought about this again today because it's it's we've wondered about this. There's an element to which like is is it just Arteta making sure. Odegaard has more energy because of how much workload he has. I I don't know. Um, it's obviously something that doesn't didn't really work. Um, but I think generally it's probably combined with the workload thing and the amount of like we still have to rely on overloading deep build up um, and having Odegaard do this thing, which we talked about shuttling between leading the press and coming deep both of which have drawbacks not in like over 90 minutes necessarily but in a like macrocosmic sense so that would be my guess but you know operative word there is guess yeah if i'm being kind i would have said that it was like a a bit of a freak out after two of our like core deeper players who could do that kind of like interesting structural stuff like timber and parte just dying within game week two or whatever it was and i was going oh okay we'll we'll find out a new solution and kind of as part of that like the wider thing in terms of like it's bit like our focus on set piece and stuff like that, it makes us like a constant threat in everything and so trying to get Erdegaard is this like this this other option in terms of structure in terms of like what we're trying to do and to kind of unlock that and go like, oh this works that'd be nice if I'm being kind, that is what it was in terms of like, we'll, we'll roll the dice and see if this works. And then if it does, then we've got something we can fall back on in case of emergency. I, I don't think Thomas Partey's breaking is an emergency at this point. I think it's like sta- standard <laughs> protocol. But, Should have been expected. Uh, yeah, exactly. I don't know why we assumed he'd be fit for the season, but here we are. But in, as to why we stuck with it for two months, into like two like really stodgy months, I'm I'm not sure, especially considering that we were like we weren't really using Kai very well at all either. We were just kind of yeah. like just shrugging our shoulders in the midfield and just going like I don't know, guys, just like win a corner or something and we'll see what we can do. <laughs> it felt at least part of it was sort of recognizing Uruguay scored like 15 goals in the league last year and so trying to get him into those positions as much as possible. But doing it in such a way that you're over-exaggerating it to a point where you're losing a lot of Odegaard's best qualities while hindering Saka as well and sort of closing that lane off to him, as well as sort of hindering Kai by giving him responsibilities he's probably not suited to. It's a puzzling 
puzzling part of our season, but here we are, and I'm really glad we fixed that. Um, I think to round off the podcast, there's one more question I have, and I'm keen to get your interpretations of it. Ateta, as we know, would rather die than using youth players. Is even Waneri getting minutes a sign of things to come, or just a consequence of unforeseen incidents? The latter. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I guess it depends where things to come. In the next like few years, yeah, I, I think Ethan Wanneri will probably get a starting spot um, given just how immense of a talent he is. Are we going to see him in the running again? Let, let, let me rephrase. No, I don't think we'll see him in the running again. <laughs> okay. That, that, that would have been my question. Do we see Ethan Wanneri get another appearance for Arsenal this season? Are we? Do we find ourselves five nil up within sixty minutes again? That's the that's what the, <laughs> the determinant of my answer. We do have a Sheffield United game in there, so there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's very fair. And on that note, I think that's all the time we have for this week. Um, thank you, Jake, for listen, uh, for coming onto the podcast. It's been very enjoyable having you on. Where can people find you? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter with the, the original username um, at Jake W Fox, um, and you can find all my like rants about set pieces and stuff on there. For the best th- threads on set pieces, go and follow Jake. He's he he does those exceptionally well. If you want to follow us on any of our social media platforms, they're all linked below. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Pod or on most other social media platforms. That exact handle is available. If you like this podcast, it would be very helpful for us if you rated and reviewed the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. Um, the music is done by James Blake. You can find him on Spotify at JWBlake. We'll be back next week to hopefully talk about more Arsenal goals and less Arsenal shots on target, meaning zero. Goodbye.